episode three, the second half of our Against Future material. The last episode covered apocalypticism, so this episode will cover the death trap of policy connected to that apocalypticism. This episode is called Against Future, Climate Change, and the Evangelical Capitalist Resonance Machine. This material comes from a question I get a lot, namely, why won't evangelical Christians believe in climate science? And last time we explored how Americans, and white evangelicals in particular, do not strongly believe there will be a 22nd century. About one in six people worldwide think we are on the verge of the end for some reason or another. Americans are about twice as likely to believe that, and white evangelicals are roughly twice as likely as the average American to believe that the world will end soon with Christ's return. Well over half of white evangelicals believe that Jesus will return soon, and I won't argue that this apocalyptic nihilism is the reason they don't believe in climate science, but it resonates, and that ambivalence helps justify its alliance with capitalism, which denies the future in a more figurative sense. It doesn't need to think about the future in its mind. And this affiliation leads to what John Hopkins political theorist William Connolly called an evangelical capitalist resonance machine. But we'll come back to that. First up, let's talk about the future. At the time of this recording, only 7 in 10 Americans believe that the world is warming at all. Barely half attribute warming to human activity. And in a dizzying display of cognitive dissonance, slightly less than half of Americans believe that climate science ag scientists agree that global warming is happening. Yes, you heard that right. Seven in 10 believe in warming, but only 48% think that the scientists believe in warming, meaning that people by a pretty large margin think that they know more than the climatologists. So we're in trouble. The partisan divide is stark. Nine in 10 Democrats and only half of Republicans believe that the earth is warming, not due to carbon, not due to man-made activity, but warming at all. Nearly eight in 10 Democrats believe that the world warming is anthropogenic in nature, while a quarter of Republicans agree. As of 2017, as I mentioned, the public saw Islamic State as slightly greater danger than climate change. So we've sailed several degrees past the 400 atmospheric carbon parts per million uh, threshold. As late as 2010, that 400 parts per million threshold was still considered the absolute limit to prevent a sixth mass extinction event in Earth's history. Now, a quarter of the carbon in the atmosphere was introduced in the last 50 years, and we now face feedback loops wherein retreating ice caps reflect less sunlight back into space, so the more the Earth heats, the more it will. Some changes will lock in irreversible new normals. Even the best-case scenarios project a six-foot-level sea rise by 2100. Again, that's on pace for a conservatively estimated 50 feet by 2500. 50 feet. If a large Antarctic ice shelf breaks off sooner than hoped, or if the polar ice caps melt entirely, a six-foot rise over decades will seem like nothing. Now, nearly half of Americans live in counties along the shoreline. Worldwide, about 4 in 10 live within 100 kilometers of the shore. So borders will physically move as coastal lines take new shape, entire cities will evacuate inland, and climate refugees could number quite literally in the billions, with a B. So the future is canceled in the same way the past doesn't exist for the white evangelical. 
And I want to be clear about this relationship because we don't understand apocalypticism unless we also see its interconnection with multiple support structures, creationism on the one hand, but also the types of markets that they're given, the media they consume, etc. So the relationship of Big Oil and Fox News and Wall Street and the Republican Party to evangelicalism is one of mutual interests or affinities that are resonating. However, evangelical denial of the future and the past are one and the same. What I mean by that is roughly equal numbers of Americans are apocalyptic and creationists, beholden to an ideology which stitches itself to deregulation. So doubt the science, also invite the deregulation. In other words, the one way this works is if someone tells me the world was created in seven days, I can probably actually guess their opinion on raising or lowering the minimum wage uh, to, a low, to a living wage, right? This is how a resonance machine works. So Fox News Channel provides some of the clearest overt justification for these fantasies of denial. And we'll explore this later with the uh, episode on against reality on media. But let's begin here for its role in a resonance machine. So for example, Fox News host Sean Hannity has portrayed climate science as a left-wing phony science, a waste of time, and a hoax. Greg Gutfield called climate concern hysteria and feared that those who wouldn't parrot the panic, as he put it, might become victims of intellectual bullying. Until its ouster from the Fox News main stage, Bill O'Reilly hedged his doubts by telling viewers, quote, nobody can control the climate except God, so give a little extra at mass or services, end of quote. Uh, we can't do anything, so just pray about it or give some more money to your church. O'Reilly actually suggested staying in the Paris Accord might buy some goodwill internationally, but he concluded, quote, it doesn't really amount to much anyway, let it go, end of quote. O'Reilly's grandfatherly calm and smug indifference ensured the audience that there was no need to panic. It might be the end of civilization, but no big deal. If the climate crisis ignored, the adjacent energy crisis fails to register attention at all. For 10,000 years after the beginning of civilization, after the dawn of the agricultural revolution, we exited the cave and then our main sources of energy were wood and domesticated animals. And then recently with the discovery of coal, the steam engine powered the industrial revolution by scaling up what we call energy return on energy investment. This is a ratio. So energy return on energy investment works like this. Whatever the unit of measurement, any energy source can be calculated by a yield or return X uh, to a energy input or investment Y. So the XY ratio shows the energy source's efficiency. For example, if EROI is 4 to 1, that means you get um, 4 units of energy for every energy unit you put in. Right. So, so it's, a, it's a back and forth ratio. So globalization was carried on the back of cheaper energy. And the advent of oil gave us a source of energy that we had never seen before and might, might never see again. At the high end of estimate, oil's initial energy return on energy investment was as much as 150 to 1. That compares to, for example, coal, which is somewhere in the 10 to 20 to 1, and wood, which was in the 4 or 5 to 1. So oil begins as 150 to 1 energy return on in energy investment. However, Energy return on energy investment changes over time as extraction becomes more difficult. So when the first major domestic oil field was drilled in Pennsylvania in 1858 by Edwin Drake, oil was practically pouring out of the ground. 
It was an irresistibly lucrative investment, and global markets settled into a state of dependence that proved resistant to changing energy return on energy investment ratios. Oil's energy return on energy investment ratio has dropped by at least two-thirds, and by some estimates, including the numbers I'll say in just a moment, oil is actually considerably worse. Drake needed to drill down only 69 feet when he drilled that first oil well in Pennsylvania, whereas more de- different, uh, recently our Deepwater Horizon oil operation drilled seven miles down. So as crude oil extraction becomes ever more sophisticated than the techniques it requires, companies turn to dirtier sources closer to the surface. Credible estimates now peg oil at 16 to 1 energy return on energy investment. That's down from 150 to 1 a century and a half ago. 16 to 1 today. Tar sands oil, however, is 5 to 1. That's the dirtiest and costliest of all petroleum alternatives, and it barely measures within the absolute minimum for modern civilization. We think that energy sources for modern civilization have to be somewhere in the 5 to 9 uh, area, 5 to 9 uh, to 1 energy return on energy investment. Let's say an average of 7 to 1 is the absolute minimum for an energy source. And though some deliver better returns, many renewable energy alternatives hover just above or just below this minimal threshold. So hydroelectric proves far and away the best at 40 to 1, followed by wind at 20 to 1. And photovoltaic solar is only 6 to 1 or as much as 9 to 1. But the technology is improving, thankfully. But against these renewable numbers, we can see why coal at 18 to 1 continues to be an attractive source as well as why nuclear power, 5 to 1, because of how much it takes to produce nuclear power in the first place, these will not save us. So we have an unnoticed emergency, a critical need for viable alternatives in a world that outside of the energy sector doesn't seem to realize there's a problem at all. So as Kevin McKay explained, globalization, quotes, globalization and incredible rates of economic and financial growth in the 20th century have been possible only because of the increased use of cheap energy. Unfortunately, while capitalist economics is premised Uh, upon the possibility of infinite growth, you cannot have infinite growth with a given finite resource, end of quote. If we do not quickly improve our alternative fuel sources, our oil will drop beneath the minimum threshold for contemporary civilization. And at that point, the grand experiment of human civilization as we know it will conclude. Game over. So we're investigating fantasies supplementing the desire for the game over. The fantasy bides its time until the end in repetition of familiar territory. It imagines there's no time left for progressive labor reforms, for discovering new and renewable energy sources, for military truces, and so on. The world will only collapse a bit further because humankind cannot ruin what God has promised to destroy. So we will lose the battle for the climate if we persist in believing we are simply engaging different points of view held in good faith. Let's take a closer look at this term, evangelical capitalist resonance machine. It designates dynamics in play across multiple social assemblages. There's never a direct causal relation between the two, but instead there's affiliation, metabolization, and expulsion. The world is left digging digging through the waste. So neither the Marxian religion as symptom nor the pompous, useful idiots of Wall Street's explanations quite work to explain the alliance between conservative Christianity and capitalism. 
Instead, what William Connolly is arguing is that capitalism and evangelicalism share affinities, not goals, but affinities, which resonate and shore up short-term victories for each other. In the pertinent example here, evangelicalism and capitalism both deny the future. Capitalism denies the future in a figurative and irresponsible sense. You know, in other words, capitalism has only the incentive to think a few quarterly earnings reports ahead. And as we've seen, evangelicalism denies the future more literally. So they don't have the same goals, but they do share affinities, nihilistic affinities, ethical affinities, anti-ethical affinities, we might say. And they don't aim for the same targets, but they can laugh at the same joke, so to speak. Especially when that joke is the collapse of the earth and the end of civilization, which is very funny to them. Connolly explains resonance as such. The capitalist evangelical assemblage finds multiple modes of expression, each amplifying the other. In the market apologism and scandal mongering of the electronic news media, in mobilization drives by Fox News, the Republican Party, and campaign ads, in administrative edicts to roll back environmentalism, weaken labor, and curtail minority rights in the name of religious morality, in right-wing appointments to the Supreme Court, in support for preemptive wars, intolerance for much worse states of or much worse state practices of torture that negate the Geneva Conventions, and in the propagating a climate of fear and loathing against the Islamic world, the resonance machine that both results the results both infiltrates the logic of perception and inflects the understanding of economic interests. End of quote. Certainly the affinity for future denial was stoked carefully. Anti-regulation capitalists were lucky that dispensational thought so thoroughly infected Christianity during the 20th century. And this is not a new concept for readers who've seen my prior work, but when the, the, the Irish minister, uh, uh, Anglican minister, John Nelson Darby, popularized the, term, the rapture after his revelation in the 19, uh, 1820s, he couldn't have imagined the effect he would have on the actual, actual collapse of the planet warmed by carbon. The system of dispensational theology founded by Darby divided time into seven periods or dispensations, with our location situated in the penultimate dispensation before the very end. Without mass appeal, his theology floundered until Cyrus Schofield footnoted explanations of dispensationalism and the rapture in his Schofield Reference Bible, a King James Bible published with footnotes that he wrote in and published in 1909. It was a widely influential study Bible during the first half of the 20th century. Many of our grandparents would have grown up reading this Bible. The Schofield Bible itself was subsidized with funds from oil tycoons Milton and Lehman Stewart, who poured even more money into the distribution of fundamentalist literature around that time. As I put the ironic relationship elsewhere, oil money converted into theology, which converted back into an almost theological trust of oil. in oil. The oil warned us of apocalypse, and we return the favor by inviting its aid in our demise. Dispensationalism served as one tool disengaging public interest in the discoveries of the later 20th century when we discovered that the world was warming. Now, by the early 1980s, Exxon was reading the future. Exxon knew what was happening. When Exxon began discussing the impact of carbon in 1978 and confirmed global warming, yeah, anthropogenic global warming in 1982, it came amidst a flurry of cutting-edge research exploring the new possibilities for Arctic drilling as the ice caps retreated. So they knew this was happening and that it was man-made. 
by 1982, and they were excited about it. For the first two decades after its discovery, 83% of their peer-reviewed papers in internal documents from Exxon scientists concluded not only that global warming was happening, but it was happening because of human activity. Even before that, in 1956, the Shell geologist M. King Hoopard projected the, ominously, the ominous possibility of peak oil. In what became known as Hoopert's Curve, United States oil production would peak in the late 60s and global production would peak not long after. Hoopert proved correct domestically when oil did indeed peak in 1970, that is, until very recently when new deregulation cleared the way for more petroleum extraction than ever before. And exactly when the world's oil supply will peak remains the subject of debate, but we're clearly running out of time. Oil producers saw an opportunity in the receding ice caps, but the advantage would disappear if the public learned about the truth. So early efforts from environmentalists were to raise the alarm in the late 70s and early 80s had little effect outside their small communities. The public was actually first alerted to the reality of global warming when a NASA scientist named James E. Hansen gave an infamous 1988 congressional testimony on the threat, which for the first time introduced this term, global warming, to the public. That same year saw the first report from an intergovernmental panel on climate change, which is still the most authoritative body on the topic. And ever since, big oil has spoken out of both sides of its mouth. As I said, Exxon confirmed warming back in 1982. During the 1990s, however, it began running what you could call advertorials in the New York Times. That is, ads for their company that were designed to read to look like legitimate editorials. So for example, just before the huge Kyoto conference on climate change, in a full 15 years after Exxon had confirmed climate change, they published a New York Times advertorial saying, quote, we still don't know what role man-made greenhouse gases might play in warming the planet, Let's not rush to a decision at Kyoto, end of quote. When attorneys general in 17 states recently started looking into whether Exxon covered up the threat and intentionally deceived the public, Exxon defended itself and said it was innocent because, after all, we published a page on our website with links to 50 different articles on climate change. Problem solved. Case closed. A lot of people should feel shame for destroying the world, but they don't. Research for the sake of oil exploration continued, as did the new message of uh, public deceit. A faith with a history of rejecting expertise proved a natural ally, and that's the evangelical capitalist resonance machine. Political leaders enliven the fantasies and falsehoods by parroting what their donors want them to say. You know, they're saying climate regulations are bad for business, bad for economy, bad for America, and so on. The evangelical base hears these cues within a vortex of religious, uh, ethnic, and economic grievances. They're thinking, I've read the book, and I know how the story ends. And meanwhile, the capitalist enjoys deregulation and slash uh, tax rates for capital gains. The military enjoys a budget boosted by a public that believes war shall only ever end with the arrival of an antichrist. The effects of future denial also extend indirectly to public education, student loans, wages, policing, inequality, healthcare, and so many interrelated issues that don't matter if the future is canceled. The beneficiary is the capitalist, but the evangelical is not without a benefit as well. In destroying the world, they save themselves from a bit of shame. Mm-hmm.